I would like you to act out what it is like to be in a kitchen with you. Like, give us instructions. All right. How, is that, wait, is that your prep list? Okay, great. So how many times are you making the compost cookie? Okay, cool. Do you have your mise? Got to make sure you unwrap the butter. Wait, how many cases? Okay, I'll start. Okay, I'll start. I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I'm Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skim. And you are listening to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top and what it's actually like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really bad days, management mistakes, the real stuff. No BS. We started The Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began, which is a couch. Christina Tosi is the founder and CEO of Milk Bar. But before all of that, she started baking at home with her family growing up. She went to school for applied mathematics, a little different. Um, She changed course and decided to head to culinary school after graduation. She worked at a few restaurants until she landed at Momofuku, where she launched the franchise's first bakery Milk Bar. In the decades since it opened, Milk Bar has expanded to 14 locations across North America. The birthday truffles are a huge crowd pleaser at Skim HQ. I would like them for my birthday coming up. And one more thing, Christina's been a judge on MasterChef too. MasterChef is also a big Skim HQ crowd pleaser. Christina, welcome to the couch. Thank you so much. So I don't know, Danielle, every time I say this, she's like, I've never heard you say that before. But my secret dream is to go to culinary school. And specifically, like, I I would love to, like, one day, like, I would just want my own bakery. I have such a sweet tooth. I love your stuff. (laughs) Walk us through, like, how do you go from math to this? (laughs) You know, I was raised by this really wonderful family um, we baked a lot in our free time. We baked for fun. We baked. Baking was basically our love language. It was what we did Aww. to take care of other people. It was the hobby. Um, I was raised to be a straight-A student and an overachiever. So by the time I finished high school, it was very clear that I was going to college and I was going to enroll in a competitive field of some sort. My mom's an accountant, so I love numbers. Um And I really, it was kind of at that point that I started to understand and realize being raised by two really passionate professionals that I should be choosing courses in college that were exciting to me. And it may sound strange to most, but math classes were like my happiest place in college. I I respect it. I don't (laughs) share that, but I respect that. Why was it your happy place? I just, I I literally could pull out my bag and show you a booklet of like math problems that I like to do in my Danielle, it's just like her mouth is a game. There is something about, I don't know, there's something about like problem solving, but problem solving with numbers. Numbers that just like really fuels my my brain. So, and my so what's very interesting to me about this is like I think what you're describing, if I was going to play armchair psychiatrist, is like you like the idea of a puzzle, right? Yes. And you love the idea of working backwards from something, and that yes. makes sense from a recipe. Yes. Cooking. So what I was going to say actually but, was okay. that I don't like baking because there's too much math. But I was going <laughs> to say that I. I love puzzles. I love all the things you're talking about, except math is really, like, was hard for me. That was my worst subject. That's been my biggest anxiety. So I don't know if we both just have a learning disability or if you're really unique. No, (laughs) math was, like, my happy place. I struggled in probably subjects that other people found very easy. But my, like, happy place was math and foreign languages. And I think it's because I knew my right brain and I knew my left brain. I knew I was, like, 
in my like happiest, healthiest place when I was straddling the two. Um, that said, I like zoomed through college and was like, oh my gosh, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be like an actuary when I grow up. And I interned <laughs> like over the summer at like actual, like what do you do when you major in mathematics? Um, I knew I didn't want to be an accountant. God bless my mom. Um, she worked so hard during tax season and so on and so forth. And I liked, I knew I just liked being around numbers. Um, but on the eve of graduation, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm raised by these two people. They love waking up and going to work every morning. I don't know that I'm going to be that excited about waking up and going into an office. Um, and so I, I just asked myself the simple question of like, all right, well, what can you do that's going to make you happy every single day? And it was basically go to culinary school and 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 bake cookies, did run you, a bakery. Did you know that answer or did you have to do some? I only knew like my very simple answer was bake cookies. That was the one thing through all of college. I'm the lunatic that would like in the middle of the night be baking cookies because it was just like that was my release from all so, of the stress of going to school. In every movie and every TV show about someone working in a restaurant, yes. like there's this stereotype of just a lot of people trying to make it while a chef is screaming at them like, you know. <laughs> That's like, real girl. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm hearing my head like behind, behind. Yes. Like, yeah, like, sharp behind, sharp behind, behind yeah. move faster. Get out of my way. <laughs> how real was that? And how you seem like a very lovely person. Do you have that side to you? I totally have that side to me. I'm super intense. Um, I have that side to me. I, uh, in my free time, I like to do things like uh, cross run cross country. <laughs> I, I recently ran a 12-hour adventure race because it sounded like an amazingly fun time. I am that like mind over matter, super intense, like I dare you to work longer and harder and faster than me. And I think that was like, that was built in me as, as I went to school as a kid. And it was very easy to apply to a kitchen, especially when you're the only girl around a bunch of guys in like the basements of New York, that's like where I thrive. I'm like, put me out of my comfort zone. Put me in a place where I stand out most. And I think that's actually like back me into a corner. And I think that's when I do my best work. Working in the restaurant industry, whether it's in a kitchen or starting your own company, it doesn't seem to have sometimes the healthiest mm. stigmas attached to it. <laughs> so you at working late hours and then yeah. you saying that you love like doing a 12-hour adventure. Mm -hmm. Did you have to develop that? Was that something that you – because I was like, oh, that makes sense why she runs a bakery. She like runs all the time outside. Yes. But how do you – was that something you developed to stay sane? Was it something that you always had in you? Or? I always had it in me. I was always – I remember as a kid my parents trying to like peel me off of like uh the field when they came to pick me up at the end of school like it's time to go home um I was always outside playing and running around I definitely I know I knew enough about myself at that point that I like to be on my feet I like to bounce around I like to be in motion sitting still is like death for me going on vacation like works I'm, I'm great at sitting still for like three hours <laughs> and then and then I'm like I gotta go do something I gotta get up I gotta move around so I knew that about myself I didn't know that it would apply so well in the kitchen I think that was that was really just like an amazing uh an amazing thing that I found in it all I knew that I'd be on my feet all the time I didn't know that I'd be screamed at all the time but I was definitely like a little bit of a stubborn kid so I wasn't used to being <laughs> reprimanded if you will um 
it's not that working in a kitchen is not the healthiest of life, right? You're on your feet for, I mean, at minimum eight hours a day, but the reality is it's closer to 10 or 12 or way back then when labor laws were very different or were um, uh, <laughs> employers were held to them were very different. And that was also part of the labor of love. It's, it's also the mentality of when you find the thing you love doing, there is no start time and no stop time. And I found that in the kitchen and I loved... I loved doing it. I loved the uphill battle. I loved that I really had no clue what I was doing. Going from home baker to working in a professional kitchen is a huge, huge leap. Um, and I was really fortunate that uh, somehow it all, all of my little quirks and, and things that I loved that were very different than most people in life ended up working out for the profession that I chose. When did you realize that um, you're, you were a star, like that there was something special about you? Um, that's a great question. I don't, I, I think, I think, I don't think of myself as a star, not, not in not selling myself on that. It wasn't until I opened the doors of Milk Bar, November 15th, 2008, 10 years ago, that I even knew that my voice in food was something other people got. But I want to like push back on that for a second, because for you to have the confidence to open Mm -hmm. Milk Bar, you also did it in a time when the economy was shit. Uh, It was during the recession, uh, right at the beginning of it. Like you, there was something in you that was like, I could do this. This will work. Like, or you wouldn't have put in the emotional and and, um, physical capital into it. So when did you realize, like, maybe don't say star, but like, you're in the kitchen, you just, you know, went from someone who could do this at home to doing this in a professional setting that you're like, hey, I'm pretty good at this. I mean, I knew in my in my 20s when I started, when I was working for other chefs and I was starting to get really good when I was the one screaming behind and I was the one pushing other people when I, when I sort of grew on the food chain closer to the top of like pecking order. Um, But even then, you're working for other people and you're making other people's food. You're bringing other people's vision to life. So it was when I opened the doors of Milk Bar that I was like, oh, there are all these people standing in line. They all get what we're serving. And it was that it was that putting it in motion, that first P&L and the first P&L came out that I was like, oh, okay, we've I've got something real on my hands. Before you opened the doors, though, how did you know that your cookies were good? Because, like, when people bake for you or you have this concept, right, everyone's going to say, it's good, it's good. Mm-hmm. And if you're not selling them directly, you can't measure the units. Yeah. So how did you actually know that this weird combination of, of flavors was something that wasn't just interesting or kind of a novelty, but was something that people would actually enjoy? It's so true because there are so many amazingly talented novice home bakers some less talented where yeah you give someone a cookie they're gonna say thank you this is amazing right a fresh a freshly baked cookie will always bring that out of people i won't say that i'm very honest (laughs) (laughs) you also love cookies i love cookies (laughs) there you go this is what i'm talking about right and i i i think it was when i actually started I started making, I started baking cookies for the chefs that I worked for on my way up uh, in my free time. I would do crazy things. Like I would work in a kitchen by night and then somehow in the middle of the night or early in the morning, bake something at home and bring it in. Or more often than not, I would make dessert for a family meal, which is the meal you make for your peers in the kitchen before you start serving mm-hmm. the general public. And I think it was there that I actually started realizing that what I was actually doing was this was this like um, meshing of culinary, the culinary technique 
that I brought from culinary school with like my home baker heart. When I started doing that and and feeding it to my my peers who were also formally trained in restaurants and then when I saw the actual chefs, the people whose restaurants it the kitchens the people who were running the kitchens whose restaurants it were eating them and becoming obsessed with them, that's when I was like, okay, I've I this makes sense to even like the most gourmand palate, but is in the most accessible form, which was always why I loved a cookie from the very get go. Okay, I wanna play a game where each of us needs to say what is like the one mistake we made like early on in our jobs, like in the action that like still haunts you. I have many, but we can each choose one. Mm. Like where you got yelled at or made a big mistake. Should I say mine? Sure. Okay. I worked at CNBC. It was a Halloween episode and I had to get a pumpkin and for the set. And I worked really hard to get this pumpkin and I had it like designed and painted and I was on, on set and I was like in the headset and I kept telling the executive producer, like, it's time to show the pumpkin. It's time to show the pumpkin. And just, everyone kept ignoring me and I kept, I must have said it eight times and she screamed, the producer screamed in my ear and goes, enough with the fucking pumpkin. <laughs> she goes, I'm trying to run a show. And I was just like, Oh my god! So that's my that's the moment that haunts me where I was like, "Oops, I wasn't good at my job." Okay. I I love you for that because whenever I'm at, when I whenever someone's like, "What's the thing that you learned? Or what would you do differently?" And inevitably, I wouldn't do anything differently because I believe in those failures that are those are the reality checks that keep you on your path. But there is something about being in your twenties and being driven when you get your first big job and you know you're actually starting to do it well. That like, man, your britches get real big and your ego starts to really take off. My moment was working the line at Boulay, which was my first serious restaurant job. This is when Boulay was like in its peak, four star, legendary dining. And I had finally like gotten good enough. I I, I had progressed enough that the hazings had stopped. and I was I was wor- I was in charge of the line during dinner service one night, and the waiters were like infamously finicky and pushy and overbearing. And the thing you always do when someone else messes up is you send free dessert. <laughs> that is like age yeah. old, the age old technique in fine dining restaurants. And they would always send the creme brulee, beautiful, gorgeous, luxurious, soft, creamy, with that beautiful like caramelized crack mm, on hungry. top. The only thing about creme brulee is it. It was the hardest thing to prep out because we had a super tiny oven to, to basically poach these creme brulees. So it would take us hours just to make 10 beautiful creme brulees. And they kept giving them away and giving them away. And I, <laughs> this is one guy who, I, who always had it out for me. And I had finally risen to the top where I was in a position of power. Kept sending out creme brulees. And I was like, Didier, you, you have two creme brulees left. And if someone else orders them, like, it is, I will rain down hell and fire on you. And, of course, he he basically gives my last one away. And then an order comes in for them. And I did this. I mean, I lost it on him in a way that I, he, oh he was speechless. Oh, my God. He was speechless. And I had a moment where... Um, I, I use my grandmas a lot in my life. Neither one of them are with me, but they both really taught me how to bake and taught me a lot about a lot of things. They were real badass women. And I had that, that was my first moment where I looked at myself in the mirror and kind of like crawled into my own skin and was like, oh my God, <laughs> they would be so disappointed Aww. if they saw this Thank behavior. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. But it was a, a good story. moment of like, you grow up 
professionally in, yeah. the, in this environment. Yeah. I mean, if you were at NBA, it's the same thing in yeah. TV, right? Where you're used to being treated in a certain way. And so somehow you think that gives you permission. Yeah. And it was a good reality check of like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be in yeah. this kitchen? What do I stand yeah. for? And I'm getting way too big for my britches because I got a long way to go and I got a lot to learn. I had, um, I was producing for a show on MSNBC and we were putting this montage together and I had like worked on it all day and it goes to air and the last word in the montage was fuck <laughs> and it went to air and I just died like it was like and the control room was silent oh my God. and the director <laughs> was like did that just happen and it was just like I just sat there and I was like I'm gonna get fined I'm gonna fined. get fired and I had to sit there, like, with standards, being like, what went wrong? And I'm just – like, and, you know, I stayed for, like, an hour after the show, just sitting there waiting, waiting. And my boss came in and just started laughing oh. and was just oh. – <laughs> like, it was just, like, I don't understand why you're so upset. That oh. made my day. Like, it oh. was – and it was kind of a good moment where, like, yes, I literally fucked up. But also that, like – a lot of worse things can happen, especially when you're working in live news. Yes. Yeah, and I imagine also, like, as a leader, right, You when, when you can see in someone that works under you that they are taking it, taking their mistake harder than you could ever try and rub their face in it, that's when you're like, you want to know what this, what this person needs most is lightness. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's take a break to talk about something very, very important. How to up our social media game. I think I found the solution. A better filter? That was mean. No, I, no. I didn't mean to be mean. <laughs> what, what's the solution? Food pictures. So I think they're only good if if the food actually like looks really good. Like you really can't mess up a food picture. Yeah. But um, I feel like this is going to tie back to HelloFresh, which you've been talking about nonstop. It is. That's actually what triggered the thought for me is what makes good food pics that do well on social good food. Okay, well, let's talk about HelloFresh. It is a meal kit delivery service that delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients. So you actually just have to cook and then you can eat. Um, And like you get to choose three plans. Um, You can get classic, veggie, family. So just pick what works best for you. Recipes are super quick in under 30 minutes. Um, And we have a gift for you guys. Listeners get $20 off your first three boxes for a total of $60 off. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Skim60 and enter Skim60 to get it. That's HelloFresh.com slash Skim, S-K-I-M-M, 60, and enter Skim60 for 50% off three HelloFresh boxes now. I want to talk about mentorship. You have some amazing mentors that like we just know about from reading about you, so I'm curious what, who you'll say are your top mentors, but... As, you're, as we've been talking about, like the culinary world is not known for being warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like from an outsider, it seems very intimidating. There seems to be a big hierarchy. There's a lot of like big names. How did you get mentors that are quite well known to be your mentors? Like how did you how did you get your first? What did, what was it in you that had no had no fear to to get people like that? And I want you to talk about who they are for you. I think. Uh, when I was first starting out, this this term like mentor was it didn't even it didn't exist as a word that you would think about when you were when you were trying to sort of chase down your dream through your career. My approach was always 
to find the person, the chef, that was doing the most interesting, compelling thing to me and my sensibility and to go and work for that person. Like, spoiler alert, they were all dudes. <laughs> they were all doing really interesting things. And I just knew I I am the kind of person, I'm very pushy and I don't, boundaries mean nothing to me. I mean, they mean something to me, but I'm like, great, I get that that's your boundary. That's not my boundary. <laughs> that doesn't apply. That's for good and for bad. Um, I would literally walk up to these restaurants and just be like, hey, I I would, I want to work for you. I would eat at I would eat at this at a chef's restaurant first. I Wiley Dufresne is one of my biggest mentors. I uh, in its heyday, I literally went to WD fifty for dinner one night, and then the next week just walked up to him and walked into the restaurant at the right time. You can't go during service. Like there's a right time to meet your yeah. future mentor. It's like hey, uh, I wanna I wanna work for you. Um, I am more than happy to work for free until a position becomes available. And I just put myself out there. And I knew that I would need to prove myself. But the first the first part of proving yourself is showing up. <laughs> the second part of proving yourself is uh, giving, showing your future potential mentor that you're willing to put a lot more into it than you're ever going to take. And I think all of a sudden that disarmed someone like Wiley, someone like Dave Chang at Momofuku. Yeah, so it disarms I want to talk, them. So David Chang is who I was thinking of, which yes. is like he would be someone if I saw on the street and be like, oh, my God, it's David Chang. Yeah. And how how did you get him to, to be your champion? That's a good – it's probably a better question for him. I, I think that – I mean, I showed up every day. The things that I learned about Dave when I met him – uh, one, he needed a lot of help. <laughs> he was, his empire was blowing up. The Momofuku empire was blowing up and he had very little bandwidth within his team. He had great talented chefs working for him, but he didn't have anyone to help him think about his business and run his business. And I like being in over my head and I'm drawn to people and personalities. And I liked his personality. I loved that he cared about what he was doing more than anything else. I loved that he went to culinary school and worked in fine dining restaurants and was just like, I want to make food for the people. And I want to make it loud and I want to make it mine. And I don't want a set of rules. All of those things appealed to me from the get-go. I think once I was in it with Dave, he saw in me that I was just as pushy and just as like, what's the goal? What's the mission? I'll get it done. Like, no excuses is how you're raised in the kitchen. There is, you just say yes and you get it done. And he saw that in me. And I think from there, the the best advice that I give anyone that works for Dave now is you, it's very simple with Dave. If you don't like working hard, do not work for Dave. If you want to succeed, to be quite honest, the only thing that you really, really, really need is is to prove to him that you care about it more than he could ever even imagine caring about it. Which goes back to the like, you have mm -hmm. to be willing to show and you have to mean it truly that you wanna put in and you wanna give more than you could ever take. And I think it's that simple. And with a, a lot of people aren't willing to go anywhere close to that far. And with people that are that accomplished and that far at the top, that's all they're that's all they really want. And that's all they know they really need to be successful is to surround themselves with people that are like minded and are and that almost put their work ethic and their drive and their care in question, not in a bad way, in a really good and a really healthy way. 
And from there, they'll champion you no matter what. I mean, I was always very honest with Dave. I would bake for Dave all the time. I was very open about who I was and what I wanted, but not like, hey, I want to work for you so that one day and then and then and then drew him out the last 10 years. It was one it was one day at a time, but it was I will be your champion and your shoulder I will be your champion and your soldier behind the scenes for you at Momofuku for as long as I need to be because that's what I'm passionate about. Do you think that you're better to work with or work for? (laughs) It depends. I like working with people. I'm a very, I'm very big on collaboration. I'm very big on teamwork in that way. I think I'm very honest. So to work for me, I imagine is very similar to working for you, mm-hmm. which is I'm really honest because I grew up in a kitchen. And so sometimes I'll spare the feelings. But most of the time when I'm in like intense go time, it's like, hey, we're all here because we believe in the same thing. And I'm going to be really honest. And that I think sometimes is a harder pill for people to swallow. Mm-hmm. When you launched, it was Momofuku. Milk bar. It was, it was called Momofuku Milk Bar. That was like our naming convention at Momofuku. Was Momofuku Noodle Bar, right? And Momofuku mm-hmm. Sambar. So Momofuku Milk Bar made sense. And now it's Milk Bar. Now, I mean, all these funny things happened over ten years. We, I opened the store. It was called Momofuku Milk Bar. That was the perfect launch, like launch pad, right? Everyone knew the Momofuku name. It was known. It was trusted. You knew you weren't. You didn't really know what you were going to get, but you knew it would be really delicious and really edgy and something you had never imagined before unapologetically in this beautiful way. Um, I was halfway in the block of 13th Street and 2nd Avenue. And if you didn't, if we didn't have a crazy line and you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Like the internet, we didn't go Mm. to the internet for the information that we do now. And so, and there was this big like swath of wall that was just empty. And so I was like, all right, I need to put a sign there, but I don't want to be obvious. I love the spirit of discovery. So I made this huge neon sign and I was like, all right, what's the neon sign going to be? Is it going to be like a soft serve ice cream cone, like from the roadsides of your vacation custard stands? And I was like, no, I was like, I'm just going to write the word milk in brush script medium (laughs) in pink. That'll be enough to at least get people's attention. And when I started doing that, people went so far as to even just call it milk. Like that milk, it's called milk, it is milk. Um, We owned like the number one search for if you typed in the word milk for like a year and a half between 08 and 09. That was like my greatest accomplishment ever. And there just became a point where it was more confusing to say than anything else. And there's just a point where people stopped dropping the Momofuku because they came to know it in a different way than the restaurants. Um, And so now we're called Milk Bar. Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot going on at Skim HQ. You're listening to Skim from the Couch, so we know you're all about female entrepreneurs and what it takes to make it to the top. But we've got something new to share with you too. In partnership with PNG, it's a new video series called Getting There, sponsored by Olay, Secret, and Pantene. Great lineup. We're going to let our friend Katie Couric, I cannot believe I just said that, ah, tell you all about it. Ever wonder how some of the best and brightest made it to where they are? Behind every successful woman is the story about getting there and their journey to the top. So I'm teaming up with The Skim to learn and share the secrets of their success. Follow The Skim on Facebook to watch Getting There. Now let's get back to our conversation. When you started, you were trying to get a break and 
kitchens. Yes. You were cooking, you were baking, you were an applied mathematician. <laughs> and now you're a judge on a TV show. Yeah. So how <laughs> what do you think about kind of the path of chefs having to at a certain point go in front of the brand more and more and more it seems whether it's actually on TV or whether it's just on social media. I think there's so many different sort of tension points between that. I know why I did it when I I was set up for success by my parents, right? And then I was like, hey, I'm going to like put a blowtorch to everything you built for me. And I'm going to go to New York. I don't know anyone. I'm going to go to culinary school. And then I'm going to work in the basements of New York City six days a week for, I don't know, 100 hours a week. You're never going to see me. I'm going to get paid minimum wage at best. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really, that was, I think, the hardest part of uh, my relationship with my parents at that point. But the one thing that actually turned my relationship around with them was when I was working for chefs that were visible. When I started working at Boulay or at WD-50 or Momofuku and they could see that the place that I worked meant something in this microcosm of a world of food in New York City, it, it, it released some of the tension a bit, right? Because they were like, okay, I get it a little bit more. I can see it a little bit more. I can actually see that you're working at the best restaurant in New York City, arguably. And so when I, I chose to do it for two reasons. I chose to be more visible in my role because, one, because of my team, because they work so hard and we have we have great benefits and great pay. Like it's a slightly different situation, but I know how important it is for the place that you work and the place that you're putting your fingerprints on and bringing like your all to every day to be visible. That's such an important part of believing in where you work now, I think more so than ever. And I also did it because I was like, there are not enough female, there are not enough females in the kitchen, let alone enough females that you can see, female chefs that you can see in the world. And I had a lot of people that I looked up to as a kid, but I think seeing is believing. The more people, mm-hmm. the more women you can see doing amazing things, the more you start to realize that you can do it too. I think that visibility is really important. And those are the two reasons that I chose to do it. I think ever I think chefs that 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 choose a more visible path choose it for different reasons. That's the reason that I chose to do it. Have you ever had to negotiate for yourself? Oh, I, all the time. So talk talk us through that. What? Oh, it's very difficult. It's mm-hmm. tricky. I think um well, one, I would my spirit is like I would love to just be like happy and spread pure mm-hmm. joy. That is like my natural disposition. Balancing it with having to negotiate for yourself very often means that like you're you're basically always balancing your good and evil, mm-hmm. right? Because people the world the way this world still works today is you see a woman negotiating for herself and it and it always comes across as like terse or um difficult or um like knuckle grinding in a mean, angry, aggressive way with a negative connotation. And I think balancing those two things is tricky. I kind of, oh, I just kind of give, I make it all, I try and make it all a cookie sandwich where it's like, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna arrive with cookies because I do wanna feed you cookies, yeah. whether I'm about to like go into a, an so insane negotiation. So basically, we've been screwing up. We should just you. bring cookies every time we wanna negotiate. Yeah. Yeah. Lead and then just that. always, yeah, exactly, lead with cookies. 
uh, to get really tough. And then is at that the because very then end, they have cookies in their mouth and they can't talk back? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. No, I think it's because like I'm here because I care. I think is what I'm was is what I'm also trying to say and to bring a softness to it. Not even because I'm worried that they think I'm going to be aggressive. I know I'm aggressive, so there's no, there's no way yeah. that you're going to think I'm not. But because that's also just how I was raised. Like you show up with cookies. And then you leave no matter what happens with like, hey, this is going to be okay. We're both here because we both care. We're just not necess- – we just don't necessarily see eye to eye. And we shouldn't be ashamed about the fact that we don't see eye to eye. Hopefully mm-hmm. we can at some point. Um, but that's tricky. I think it's more it's more of a learning how to process it internally, yeah. at least for me, than anything else. And just to like go to bed – wake up every morning and go to bed every night being like, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm a good person in the world. I'm a nice person in the world. And just because I have to get tough, it doesn't take away from that. How many cookies do you eat a day? <gasps> it totally depends on the day. I have a crazy cookie tasting later today in oh which God, I will – pro- <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> come and then bring some to whatever, wherever your Thank next you so negotiation much. is for this. Average day, how many cookies do you eat? <laughs> Yesterday I ate two. Today I'll probably eat closer to six. But okay. they're like smaller – they're smaller than the normal milk bar cookie. Yeah. I'd say probably on average one and a half. Um, what's the worst piece of advice you've gotten? Um, the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten is don't move to New York. You're going to get eaten alive. Ooh. No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> um, okay. As we, as we depart this interview, uh, I would like you to act out what it is like to be in a kitchen with you. Like, give us instructions. Oh, okay. Um, all right. How, is that – wait, is that your prep list? Okay, great. So how many times are you making the compost cookie? Okay, cool. Do you have your mise? Got to make sure you unwrap the butter. Wait, how many cases? Okay, I'll start – okay, I'll start <laughs> Do people I'll forget start to unwrap the, the butter? And sugar. No, just like once you start going oh. with the recipe, you have to make sure all of your mise en place or mise is ready to go. All your what? Your mise en place, which is basically like the very French Oh, my God, like mise en place. Oh, exactly. my gosh. But we call it meat, like mise for short. Oh. And then because we make – such big batches of everything yeah. in our crazy like wonderful Willy Wonka world kitchens oh, it's like how many times are you making that recipe okay cool you're making the compost time six like someone will yeah. say I'm making the compost time six okay cool do you have your butter added your mise ready okay wow. and then we tag teaming in the kitchen I think is the most fun part of working at Milk Bar one because we're making such big batches in a really fun way but two because you there is this kind of like uh, you're both climbing this mountain together, running this like adventure race together every day at work. And it is a workout. It's like you're you are like bench pressing and squatting 50 pound bags of flour and sugar. Um, and most most activities in the kitchen at Milk Bar are done in teams of two or more. OK, it's time for Skim <laughs> HQ to take a cookie break. OK, thank you for <laughs> thank coming you, on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.